You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. Thank you, Maddie. Actually, it's my great privilege to be married to Matt. He's an extraordinary, extraordinary husband. Look at me getting all emotional. I love family. I love family. I know. I have family here today, but you're all my family. <laughs> I love family so much. I love you guys. Um, thank you for braving the storm. Apparently, it's the storm of the decade, but who knew? Um, I know. Storm of the decade. But anyway, <laughs> um, I am humbled. I'm very I'm humbled to just be in front of you guys. I'm humbled because... The five guys asked me, and um, I just want to just emphasize how um, just it's an incredible thing. We just we have five men here leading, and um, they're just incredible guys, really willing to walk so that so many of us can run. And um, I really appreciate them. So, actually, speaking of ham- family, I just want to mention, quick side note, my family is extending. My daughter... <laughs> My daughter is pregnant, and she's having a boy. (laughs) I am so excited about this. I keep referring to it as my baby. (laughs) She's like, what do you want, Mom? That's a little awkward. And I'm like, but it is my baby. I mean, I literally already have a crib in my room. My my sister-in-law, Amy, gave it to me, and sweet Sara, actually, who attends here, she... She, brought, she heard about it and brought me an ergo. Matea walked into the bedroom and she saw it and she was like, oh, is this for me, Mom? And I was like, actually, I didn't intend to give it to you at all. It's for me, but... <laughs> My baby, potato, potato, tomato, tomato, whatever. Um, anyway, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. So, um, the text I was given today is Acts. 755 to 60. Six amazing verses. Hopefully that will impact you as much as it did me. Um, it's referred to as the stoning of Stephen. I will read it entirely and then together we'll walk through it more, so, more um, slowly. After that, which has been previously said, I've been asked specifically to talk about loss and grief, in which, of course, I will do my best. My sweet husband is, um, has been back and forth from Wisconsin to here um, recently because he is walking with his father who right now is transitioning into um, a great promotion. And so, um, so this is all around us. It's all around us right now, all the time, loss and grief. And um, I'm privileged to talk about it with you today. First context. I'll remind us that Stephen has found himself in the same or rather similar position that Christ probably was probably in one year earlier. He stands falsely accused before the Sanhedrin. He's been accused of blasphemy against God, against the law, against Moses and the Holy Temple. Stephen has maintained complete calm during this. He gave an extraordinary rebuttal, didn't he? I don't, that could be a class of its own. He's described earlier as having the face of an angel. So we think he was actually glowing 
which is, I feel like that should have intimidated them, but, <laughs> but it didn't. What directly precedes our passage today is when Stephen just really begins to lay into and rebuke his accusers about how stubborn and hard-hearted they are, like Christ had done before him with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He calls them betrayers and murderers, and now they're absolutely enraged. So let me read the full text, Acts seven fifty-four to 60. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. We've been introduced to the first martyr for Christ. It's from this event that believers are scattered and the gospel really begins to spread. And persecution of the early church it intensifies. Some see this event as the defining separation between Jude Judaism and believers in Jesus. But there's so much more to that story, isn't there? So we should ask ourselves, what sort of man was this that endured in faithfulness even unto death and a violent one at that? What sort of man was this that endured in faithfulness even unto death and a violent one at that? Stephen is clearly a man sold out for Christ. He's all in. And that's our theme this year, all in. He's the first one named in the seven that were chosen to step in and care for particular needs the early church was facing. He's explained in the word as being full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith and of grace, so much so that his ministry is empowered by signs and wonders among the people with whom he's sharing the gospel of Christ. It's reasonable we look to a man like this as an example to emulate. What an, what an extraordinary thing to be explained like that. So looking closely, let's read. Step through verses 54 and 55. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. It's seemingly so simple and yet so not, considering the immense anger and intense pressure immediately surrounding him. What is the first thing we see Stephen doing? We observe him doing. What is he doing? He's looking up. That's right. He's looking up. He looks up. He casts his eyes heavenward. And what does he see? God in all his glory and Jesus at his right hand. Stephen literally facing a mob. And his intuitive response is to look up for his Savior. Can you imagine garnering so much in your life 
so much intimacy with Christ that your intuitive response in pressure such as he was facing is to look up for your Savior. Wow. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't scream louder to be heard. He looks up and is met with an incredible vision. It's a beautiful picture and reminder of really of where we should keep our focus. Certainly not on who we perceive as our enemies. That takes up so much of our mind space, doesn't it? And really, it's Christ who we're to look to. To have had this kind of fixed focus, Stephen had a heavenly perspective. We know he did in an understanding that his immediate circumstances were temporal. Like him, we should live. We should live with the mind that, mindset that this is temporal. This is not our home. And we heard that in worship today, and I love that when everything comes together. We haven't even communicated, and yet all of our songs today, this is not our home. This is not our prize. What is? Where is our home? He is. Our Savior is. He is our prize, and our home is with him. Amen. Amen. Luke records Jesus telling us to do a similar thing during the end days when humanity is coming to its climax. If you ever see me alone in the car and I'm talking to myself, I'm probably repeating this verse because it's one of my favorites. Luke 21, 28. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your head because your redemption is drawing near. Amen. Straighten up and raise your heads. Your redemption is drawing near. <laughs> oh, if we could be a people that consistently maintain a heavenly perspective. I wonder how much of this entangling stuff around us would fall away. That would be an extraordinary thing to be dead to ourselves, but alive in Christ. Verses 56 to 58. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him or rushed with one mind at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Stephen, looking up and declaring the vision he's seeing, gives his accusers that final push over the edge by ascribing to this vision the title son of man. At this point, it's clearly mob mentality, and they're so enraged, they rush at him and drag him to his death by stoning. So why did they respond that way to that title? Um, this could be a whole class, really. Matt just read two books on this title. Two books. <laughs> That's funny. You can laugh. That's, I mean, it's awesome. But, but only my husband would do that. But it refers, it refers back to Daniel 7. And Jesus refers to himself in this way 78 times. When you see this kind of thing in the word, that's an indication. Look to it. Look more to it. 
the Jews would have understood well what Stephen was claiming about Christ because they had been marinated in the Hebrew Bible since childhood. There would be no need for it to be explained in this context. They would have thought of this, these verses, Daniel 7, 13 to 14. I'm going to read them. And these are awesome. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This title is distinct and complex, encapsulating Christ's divinity, his kingdom, his position as prophet, priest, king, and finally as judge. There is no half gospel or mediocre understanding here. Again, we're, ste- we're seeing Stephen's depth and breadth of understanding the word and his Messiah, the Messiah, it is robust, to say the least. In one title, one title, he's hit on Christ's incarnation, his deity, his sacrifice, his resurrection, and his ascension, and his return. And they know it, and they're mad. (laughs) I think we should look closely at Stephen's example here. And consider how we should emulate his deep understanding of the word and his savior. Especially, especially considering the tragedy that Christ is so often peddled off as a self-serving coping device. Come to Jesus. He will bring you peace. Come to Jesus. He will bring you joy offering that as the reason. Peace and joy do organically flow from a deep and committed, committed relationship with Christ because of who he is and because we have made him Lord of our lives. But what flows from a shallow or me-centered gospel is that God will become an object of blame and anger when things don't go as anticipated or desired. To become offended by God is a tragedy that will for sure sideline our sanctification and marginalize us. It's curious to note that in Stephen's vision, the Son of Man is seen standing. This is curious because it's the only, only account that portrays this picture, him standing. Usually he's sitting at, sitting at the, at the right hand. Commentators consider a few possibilities concerning this. One of them is that Jesus and Stephen are so intimate. They're so intimate. This picture conveys Jesus' joy-filled anticipation in receiving his servant. Stephen is surely seen, and Christ is with him in the greatest moment of need. Amen. Christ is with us in our greatest moments of need. We do not serve a disengaged Savior. Praise God. 
Here we are introduced to Saul, who later is called Paul. He's the foremost writer of the New Testament. You wonder, I wonder, what must have gone through Paul's mind and heart upon coming to understand the truth of who God is. Who Christ was, excuse me. He must really have understood and plummeted the depths of God's grace. Paul endorsed Stephen's murder. He was well acquainted with human depravity. There is no one outside of God's reach. We would do well to remember that there is no one outside of God's reach. Matt Chandler says that some people look to the cross and say, I don't need it. Some others look to it and say, it isn't enough. I'll remind us that though that Jesus, as he hung on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. It is finished. And then darkness came and the ground shook and people were raised from the dead and the curtain separating the holy place in the temple tore down the middle displaying clearly that the debt for sin is paid once and finally for all who will humbly receive it. Oh my goodness. Amen and thank you. Nobody is outside of God's reach. That is an amazing thing. Let's go through 59 and 60. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. We know somebody else who said something similar. Yeah, Jesus was um, on the cross. And what did he say? Lord, to you I commit my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He fell asleep. (laughs) Stephen echoes his Savior here, as recorded by Luke in his gospel. On the cross, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What an extraordinary thing. Stephen, in his last breath, cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What an incredible thing to walk so intimately with Jesus and emulate him so profoundly that your last thoughts towards your enemies are gracious and uttered on their behalf. That is an amazing thing. Forgiveness is essential. I truly believe that a Christian's failure to forgive exposes our lack of understanding God's grace. That is a heavy thing. The parable Jesus spoke of in Matthew 18, the unforgiving servant who was forgiven an unpayable debt. He could never have paid it off. And then refuses to forgive someone else a much smaller debt owed to him teaches this. Who are we to not forgive and let go of our wrath and need for vengeance when we've been forgiven of everything? I ask myself, I tell myself often, the audacity of you, Margot, to not forgive when you've been forgiven 
of everything. We could never deserve grace and yet are benefactors of it. It's a hard saying and it's exposing and it continually convicts me. It continually convicts me. And Stephen's example is extraordinary. It's extraordinary. The passage records Stephen's death as fell asleep. The words are in such stark contrast and even a peaceful description for such a brutal death. Stephen had just seen his resurrected Savior in his earlier vision, and with these words, Luke is speaking, Luke, the author of Acts, is speaking to the certainty of our resurrection from the dead. The early church understood the death as a sleep from which one would awake to resurrection life. I know, woo! First Thessalonians 4, 1. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do, who have no hope. If you do not have that hope today, today is the day of salvation. Do not hesitate. Grace, it is abundant and it is for you if you but receive it. So to summarize what we've just read, Stephen looks up to see his Savior in his most crucial moment as he endures to the end of his testing. Because don't, don't be fooled, everything is a test. <laughs> I remind myself of that often. This is a test. And we have the opportunity to to work with Holy Spirit, allow him to change us or to harden our hearts. We can't help but see that he had an incredible understanding of scripture and who Christ was. He had an incredible understanding of scripture and who Christ was. We're challenged by his choice to forgive even his enemies, which speaks to his deep understanding of grace. I would explain Stephen's relationship with the Lord as what I've come to understand as covenantal. And that's going to be important. Now, tucked away in chapter 8, verse 2, we read the words, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. There's great grief over the loss of Stephen. Of course there would be. And we do grieve when there's loss, even knowing that they have been promoted to glory. There's yet great grief over our brothers and sisters. There should be. And so now, let's talk about that. The ways in which people respond to grief, to loss and grief, are as diverse as we are. What an amazing tapestry he has made. There's no manual, there's no five-point plan. I've come, to, I've come to think that the whole steps of grief thing is, uh, is hogwash. I don't understand it. I had a friend liken it to, <laughs> excuse me, I had a friend liken it to the ocean. I appreciated that. Some days the tide is away from us. Some days the waves, they come close. And some days they crash and they overwhelm. It's a journey. 
It's a journey, isn't it? It is important to note that during, <laughs> during immense grief, this is for sure a terrible time for the grieved person and for those surrounding them to take a snapshot of each other and e to take a snapshot of each other and judge each other entirely and the whole of the relationship according to that snapshot. Knowing, understanding, and considering context with one another is imperative. My sister-in-law, Amy, put it so nicely when I asked. She said, I learned that understanding someone's situation or difficulty goes a long way in the amount of understanding and compassion I have for them. We learned that as a family as we walked through what we did. This is that thing of considering and pushing into one another's contexts and learning to invite others into our story. We must invite people into our story because it is his story. It is his story. Dr. Julie Slattery has certain languages she uses to describe how we approach our relationship with the Lord and others. And it has been poignantly illuminating to, to me in these last few years of so much grief for Matt and me and, and many surrounding me. These terms are transactional versus covenantal, which I feel are pretty self-explanatory if we're honest. But let me explain. Transactional is very me-centered. I did this for you. Now you must do this for me. It's tit for tat. It's this thing of expectation. And we do it a lot, especially in marriages and friendships. So this versus covenantal. Covenantal, a binding commitment that is not dependent on a return. Wow, and that is what God has offered. God offers covenant. We wander and we constantly fall short, but he is long-suffering and is not done with any of us. Let's remember that for one another. He is long-suffering and is not done with any of us. He will never leave, leave us, nor will he forsake us. That is astounding. While he alone will bear with us in absolutely everything, wouldn't it be incredible, transforming, and freeing, and healing if in the body of Christ we were always endeavoring to approach one another with that kind of covenantal perspective? Especially during times of grief when we are all at our most vulnerable and it's an interesting thing about vulnerability. Willingness to be vulnerable is absolutely essential for a strong and a vibrant relationship. And yet it's the most likely place we'll be hurt. And it's, so it seems this, this tension is intrinsically linked while moving amidst broken people. That though we will be hurt and hurt others, we must continue to invite people into our stories and to push into theirs. We have small groups, by the way. 
My dad used to always remind me that all fruits of the Spirit are relational in nature. And so we must engage in relationships in order to be sanctified. That was so annoying when he would remind me of that. Margot, no, you can't disengage. All fruits of the Spirit are relational. You have to be in relationships. Because how do you even recognize a mature believer? How is it they're recognized? Because they bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, long-suffering, <laughs> gentleness and self-control. Thank you, my Maddie. This is why I love him. I keep him around. He's lovely. <laughs> Tyler Statton's book, um, Praying Like Monks, <laughs> Living Like Fools, um, it, illu- it illuminated to me this consideration that really, really impacted me greatly this past summer. And it was this idea. It was this problem, really, What if we bring to God our most treasured desire or our greatest pain or our greatest fear? What if we bring those things to him and we're met with silence or a no? That may be too painful, irreconcilable, or disappointing. And so instead, we keep him at a distance and others by never engaging with him on our deepest level. We're so afraid of that no or silence. But we're safe. We tell ourselves we're safe. Maybe not ever even realizing that the price we've paid is actually too great. The cost is too great because he is worth everything. When I lost my father, who was so fundamentally a part of who I was, the ground under me shifted, and I was shook to the core in ways I didn't anticipate. Kendra, my sister, put it well. She said, until this moment, I thought losing your dad was normal and part of life. It turns out when you lose someone you have always had, you feel as if your foundation has been ripped away. Not everybody has a father like that, and I am so sorry and grieved for you. Thank goodness. Thank you, Lord, that we have him. Thank you, Lord. The really crazy part was that things just kept moving forward, right? You all just kept moving forward. Rude. Um, And I... (laughs) I couldn't catch up to what had happened. I couldn't catch up. It will be two years in May, and I've honestly really struggled finding my footing and my voice. And that, that surprised me a lot. For those of you who know me well would know that. Um, it wasn't entirely that he had passed, even though I still miss him terribly. It was much to do with how he passed. I would, not, I would not have described my relationship with the Lord as transactional, if you would ask me. I mean, in my darkest hours, my faith, it was not shaken. Because that stake in the ground, that Jesus is the only answer, had been planted long ago. Jesus is the only answer. 
But there's nothing like grief which makes us so vulnerable to expose those hidden things that we don't see. And God just has this thing about going straight to the heart of the matter, just unabashedly, and it's so fun. So fun. I really didn't realize I had a transaction with God totally worked out, and that certain perceptions of him were tied to it. You see, my dad pursued God fervently, fervently. He was bold. He was courageous. He was all in. He got saved in college during the Jesus movement, and those radical roots stayed with him always. Have you guys seen the movie Jesus Revolution? He knew Lonnie Frisbee. He came to our church. That tells you a little something about him. He was involved in Christian communes, Christian communes, in, in Berkeley and Sacramento. He and my mom, who was beautiful during this journey, by the way, he pastored a church for 30 years. He was an incredible teacher. He authored books. I cry all the time now. Don't worry about it. Melinda would be very proud of me. I said that earlier. He was an excellent father, and his influence in my life is profound and others. So in my mind, that translated to him having this beautiful and gracious transition into the kingdom. I had it all planned out. He had earned this right? He had earned this. I thought there'd be so many beautiful and tender moments. My mom and dad lived with me at the time. Um, this is not what happened. My father was diagnosed with Parkinson's and it very quickly progressed and it robbed him of so much. Just a man who filled the room. That's what he was like. By my estimation, he didn't deserve this end. So while my faith was not shaken in my grief, when I was given front row seats to the darkness and confusion of my father's difficult journey, those transactional expectations began to be exposed. And this was a test for my heart in its entirety before God. As I laid in my bed on those dark nights, I could feel the Lord nudging me, moving closer, Margo, moving closer. Don't suppress. Don't continue adamantly forging forward. Be still. Settle. Submit everything. I say that to myself often. Submit. Don't suppress. There's a vast difference between the two. And you have to actually settle enough to know and understand what you're feeling in order to submit it. Listen. And when I did, the questions I began to hear were things that went straight to my heart. Margo, while you testify to me being the only answer, will you yet testify to my compassion? my mercy, my kindness, and my gentleness. He is a gentle God. Will you believe that I see all of you, that you are not passed over, and that I have all your best in mind? 
You see, I believe that when we are facing times of great grief, we may become in danger of carving out of our understanding of God certain characteristics that we can't reconcile to our circumstances. And that's this thing of contracts or our transactional mindset. If we don't surrender the contracts we've made when they're highlighted, we won't enter into that covenant with him where it is possible to know and to be known. To learn to love unconditionally, which is only a work of the Holy Spirit. If we can't learn it with him, we certainly will not with others. I will be the first to concede this is still being relentlessly worked out in my life, as I'm sure it is for all of us. I have this picture in my mind that I gained during this time of just clinging to Jesus. I see myself clinging to the hem of his garment. I cling to him because I realize it is he who is peace. Peace is not conjured up because I believe in him. It is him. He is peace. I am laboring to enter his rest. I think sometimes we think, think of it as this magical thing that will happen to us. But we labor to enter his rest. We choose to believe in God and his character. He and our brothers and sisters, they are worth the cost. They are worth the cost. And of course, our hearts yearn. It yearns for perfection that only can be found in Christ. We and everyone will always, we will disappoint. I have this thing about having to know the end of a TV show when it gets too stressful. And my, my girls and others get so mad at me. They get so mad at me. I'll like Google the end because it's so stressful for me. And but I always tell them, I always tell them, but our hearts yearn to know the end of the story. This is, this is okay. God has put this into my heart. Imago Dei. Let me Google it. Our hearts yearn to know because you know what? I know the end of mine. I know the end of mine. And if you know him and have received him, you know the end of yours. That's why today is the day of salvation. (laughs) I know who's taking me home. I know who's taking me home. I know who took my father home. If we've looked to him and his covenant, grace will pour from us. This incredible thing that endures and is freely given the more we're transformed and thus the body of Christ is. One of the greatest treasures when I lost my father was in, was in finding those who were able to endure with me and I was able to endure with them. It was a treasure. It's really hard and it certainly cannot be everyone but it is a precious gift nevertheless. Maybe we can begin to ask more. How can I help you carry your burden today? Or on the opposite, with, with no thought of return, how can I help you carry your burden today? Or, hey, I need help. I need help carrying 
my burden today. We'd ask because we'd be more willing to be vulnerable. Because we've truly learned to extend grace and forgiveness when others fall short. We've given up that transactional mindset. This is a sacrifice and it's humbling. It's truly humbling. It is only through God and the Holy Spirit who is the perfect covenant keeper that we learn these covenantal traits of compassion, mercy, kindness, and gentleness. And where we learn to endure and to think lovingly of each other. These are the lessons of grief. And this is the fellowship of his suffering. It is a great privilege, a great privilege to respond accordingly and to testify of him. Until we pass into eternity, our hearts will yearn for his perfect love. When my father passed, all of his family surrounded him, and there was a moment, it was, it was just, it was maybe a minute before he took his last breath, and he opened his eyes and he looked up, and I tell you, the whole family... You could try to tell me it was something else, but I tell you what, the whole family, everyone in the room, we were like, there he is. <laughs> Can you see him? Can you see your Savior? There he is because we believe that God, Jesus, was ushering him home, and he was seeing something incredible, just like Stephen saw that we, we look forward to that. I know, look, we're all mess, whatever. <laughs> I am positive, I am positive that Stephen and my, my father, they heard the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. And I hope that that is our greatest heart's cry. All of us in, in this room would look to hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. I'm going to end with 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 58. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When, this perish when the perishable put on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. If you know it, say it with me. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Can't you just see him saying it that way? I read it so differently. Man, oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? <laughs> the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen.